Well, Aaron summarized uh, last week's sermon very nicely in the weekly update on Realm. If you haven't read that, I want to read it for you, and then you can go back if you'd like to and read it again. Uh, But he wrote the following. He said, sometimes it seems that we can overcomplicate things. And he said, at least I know I can. It may be helpful from time to time to be reminded that, quite simply, Christians are those who believe in and belong to Christ. The passage from last night's sermon, which was the previous passage, um, we looked at the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20, he said he gives us reasons and confidence for that belief. Jesus is a compassionate Savior who does not delight in the destruction of sinners. Yet he's zealous for justice and righteousness and will remove every sin that dishonors his glory and every obstacle set in the way of those seeking to come to him for salvation. He has every right and the authority to do this whether his authority is recognized or not. This means he's also, or he also is, sufficiently powerful to save, heal, and restore us from every sin committed by us and against us. He is the true temple where we can meet the living God. Um, And I'm sharing that because I like it, um, number one, but also I start there because it's important for us to keep last week's passage in mind as we look at and turn to this week's passage. It's important for us to remember um, last week's text because it's inextricably linked to this week's text. We can't separate them, though we did in in our study and in the sermons, we can't, we can't do that as we move ahead. And they're inextricably linked because what he does tonight is what he didn't do in verse 8. If you remember the questions that were before us, were, or the questions that were asked of him were, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? And again, he didn't answer in, in verse 8, but he is going to answer tonight. He does answer in this passage in the parable that Aaron just read. And in verse 9, Jesus turns his attention as he always, or has, as he has been doing on his journey to Jerusalem. He's got many people following him, and he would address different groups as he went. And he's turning his attention away from the leadership to the people in general, to the crowd, knowing all, all along that the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders and the chief priests are all listening in, right? They're still there, and he knows it. And so he begins to tell this story, and it's the parable that, uh, it's the last parable that Luke records, and he doesn't take the time in this one to do what he did in the previous two. He doesn't take the time to actually explain or share the purpose of the parable, and he really, he doesn't have to because it's very, very clear of what the purpose is. The people that were listening knew exactly who he was talking to and what it is he was trying to say. It was inescapable. And that's because the image of the vineyard was an image that they all would have recognized. It was an image that was used throughout Scripture uh, many times. It's It's a metaphor that they would understand. It's in places like Psalm 80 and Isaiah 27 and Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel 19 and Hosea 10, just to name a few. And they also would have recognized the idea of prophets being represented by servants in a, a parable. And that's because it, that's how it was done throughout the Old Testament. In First and Second Kings and Ezra and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Amos, and Zechariah all have that same symbolism. 
And they also would have recognized in the middle of the story, you know, the things that he was saying, what he was alluding to, they would have known he was coming from Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, and then at, later on that he would be addressing um, Isaiah chapter 8. And so as he tells, as well as Psalm, of course, Psalm 118. So as he tells it, everyone would have understood immediately that God is the landowner who planted the vineyard. They would have known that the vineyard represented the people of Israel, and more specifically, Israel's privileged position and identity as the people of God. They would, have been, they, they would have known that, even it would have been etched in their minds because there was also this 100-foot grapevine carved into, uh, above the door between the porch and, and the holy place within the temple. So it, it's in the forefront of their minds. Servants, they, they would have known that the servants, or I'm sorry, that the tenants are the spiritual leaders of Israel and that the servants were the prophets that God had sent throughout history to the people of Israel. But the question would come in this idea of the beloved son. The beloved son whom the landowner sent and the servants killed. Of course, we know, looking back, that it was Jesus Himself they would have understood somewhat of because based upon what he had been saying all along and, and claiming to be the Messiah. But right, we're, we're not yet to the cross. That's coming in a week. So they hear what we know to be Jesus himself saying he was that beloved son. Really, what this is, is a prophetic autobiography. And what we want to do tonight in this prophetic autobiography is look at three things. The outline is in the normal place in your bulletin. We're going to look at the character of God. We're going to look at the heart of man. And then we're going to look at the consequences of unbelief. Character of God, the hearts of men, and the consequences of unbelief. And this is our custom. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we continue. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word? Grant all of us spiritual eyes and ears that we need to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding Christ and His gospel. Awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us, and then, as always, refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. Would you grant me power by your Holy Spirit? Would you grant me grace that I might do something good for you this evening because I am unfit, in and of myself unfit for this task to which you've called me? Would you enable me to do something good for you this evening, for you and for your people? And it's in Christ, and for Christ's sake, and for the sake of His church, I pray these things. Amen. Man, planner of God in verse 10 of our passage, Jesus as a man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when, he, and when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vine. The landowner has taken a great deal of time to prepare the land for the tenants and for those who were going to work the land. His desire was for the land to produce fruit. 
He wanted his tenants to be successful, so he puts the sweat equity needed to bring that about. If we use language from Isaiah 5, we, we could say that he probably chose a fertile piece of property, uh, that he dug out and cleared out the stones that were present. He planted it with choice vines. He may have even or probably built a watchtower in the midst of it and then hewed out a wine vat within it. And again, he expected grapes to be yielded. He expected fruit to be produced. So the landowner has done everything possible to make these tenants successful. He's done everything that he can to make what would have been a, min, a minimum three-year labor-intensive job that would have involved a lot of pruning. He would have made that not only doable for the tenants, but he would have, he would have made it extremely difficult to be unsuccessful. He'd put the work in to guarantee a yield, not only to support them, not only to give them the fruit that they needed, but also for them to provide the 25% that they would owe him for leasing the land. And as expected, unlike the vineyard in Isaiah 5, right, we've got some connections, but we've got some continuity, we've got some discontinuity. Unlike the, the, the vineyard in Isaiah 5 that only produced wild grapes and the and the grapes that weren't uh, usable for wine, this vineyard produces what the landowner wanted and expected. It produces a bountiful supply of good fruit. But when, this, but when the landowner sends a servant to collect on that 25% that they're owed, Jesus says that the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. If you or I had been that landowner, and if we had been in his sandals, I'm sure we would have, at that point, contacted the authorities, we would have sought for him to be removed, or we would have come to remove him ourselves. We wouldn't have put up with what he had done, but rather, this, this landowner, rather than do that, rather than do what we would have done, he does something that we're not expecting, and he sends another servant. Well, that servant, unfortunately, is refused, like the first, take, and this time things escalate, and the tenants take him and beat him, but they treat him shamefully. The reaction, again, escalated. The first servant was beaten and sent away, the second is beaten and treated shamefully, and again, you know, the landowner, we're thinking in our minds, you know, fool me once, right? Shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And we would have sought justice. Landowner doesn't do that. The landowner decides to send a third servant. And third time, the third time is not a charm. And again, it escalates. And Jesus said that they took that servant and they wounded him and cast him out. They don't just beat him and tell him to go away. They traumatize him. And they severely and forcibly expel him out of the vineyard. And in verse 13, right, we read verse 13, Jesus says that the owner finally asks the question. We're like, yeah, it's, it's time. Right? And he says, what am I going to do? 
And most of us are thinking, cut your losses, right? Do something different. Reclaim your land. You've done more than enough. You don't deserve what's been happening. They don't deserve another chance. They don't deserve to be on your land. Remove them. But again, unlike us, the landowner in Jesus' story raises the stakes, and rather than, rather than step in and to remove them, and rather than send another servant, he determines to send his own beloved son. And I don't think it's a stretch to believe that it's his only son whom he greatly loved. He's probably, not just probably, he is the sole heir of the estate. It's his land as well. Surely, right, surely, they didn't listen to the servants. Surely they're going to listen to him. Surely they're going to respect him. Surely they're going to do what they've, they, they should have done in the first place and give what was being asked of them. But it escalates a fourth time. And this time they don't just leave him for dead. They kill him. Three times I'm going to ask, what was Jesus driving at? What was he communicating? What did he want those who were originally listening to understand? And at this point, he is, he is perfectly and clearly describing the character of God. He wants long-suffering. He wanted them time to know and understand the character of God. God is long-suffering. He wanted them to know that He was patient, even in the face of trouble, even in the face of trouble caused by others. He wanted them to know that God is forbearing, right? It means it's, He's patient and He's restrained, he wanted them to know that God is kind, and He's merciful, and He's gracious, and He's forgiving. You see, God had, had done everything for Israel. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 8. He's, the Word says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, Israel, to be a people for His treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He had not only set His love upon them, He had not only chosen them, he had, he had redeemed them, but, but He moves them out of Egypt and gives them a land of Canaan. And then He was gracious even one step further when He gives them right, His expectations and, his, and how they are to live within that land flowing with milk and honey by giving them the law. And because He had redeemed them and given them the land He had promised, He had this rightful expectation of obedience on their behalf. It was what He was due. And He had not only been gracious to clearly set out the expectations, but He had also included the sacrificial system within the law and the, and, and the, cere the ceremonial section and the sacrificial system of the law 
to help them and to provide for them when they fell short of those expectations. So he's laid out the expectations and then what to do when they can't do it. They had everything, again, everything at their disposal to produce fruit of righteousness that he deserved. But unfortunately, throughout history, we read throughout the Old Testament, they had turned their back on the Lord, but he was patient with them, and he was kind toward them. He mercifully withheld what they deserved. He graciously gave them what they did not deserve. And over and over and over again, he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to turn them back, to call them to repentance, to restore their relationship to him. And prophet after prophet after prophet was rejected. But his patience didn't wear out. Because then he decides, I'm going to send the prophet of all prophets. I'm going to send the prophet who points to all other, or the, 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 the one prophet, the great prophet, to whom all other prophets point. I'm going to send the greatest of all prophets who was also the beloved son of God. The beloved son of God, the only begotten of the Father, the one in whom the Father was pleased. And in less than a week, they'd kill him. What's he communicating for us this evening? The good news is, what is he communicating for us? Brothers and sisters, the good news is that God remains, he remains compassionate, he remains patient. He remains the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is immutable. He does not change. So he continues to be long-suffering. He continues to be forbearing. He continues to be kind. He continues to be gracious. He continues to be merciful. He continues to be forgiving. He continues also to rightfully expect obedience and continues to graciously and clearly lay out His expectations of, for us in His Word. He's provided a way of salvation. He equips those with power to show forth fruit of repentance and fruit of righteousness by His Spirit. He continues to forgive if we turn in faith to Christ he, conti he continues to allow us to hear His Word preached week after week after week. And the parable teaches us in Paul's words that it is His kindness that leads us to repentance. And the wrath that will come on the day of wrath is not due to anything lacking in God. It's not due to any flaw in His character. It is simply due to the hard and impenitent hearts of men. Which leads us into the second point. Over and over and over again, the tenants refuse to submit. They refuse to bow to the authority of the landowner. And they reveal their hearts over and over and over again. I imagine them thinking something along the lines of, by, by whose authority are these servants coming? Right? It's the same question. 
back earlier? By whose authority are these servants coming? Who gives them the right to demand payment from us? The landowner, the landowner's been gone for a long time. How do we even know he's alive? We're the ones working the land. We're the ones doing all the hard work. All of this really, if we think about it, belongs to us. In the end, they wanted all of the benefits of living and working hard on the land, but they didn't want to give the landowner the respect and the dignity or the payment that he deserved. They wanted the blessing of being a tenant without all of the responsibility and the expectations. And over time, their hearts grew harder and harder and harder. That they and finally, their hearts grew so hard that they reject the servants. And not just the servants, but they reject the beloved son. And of course, in rejecting the servants and in rejecting the son, they're actually rejecting the landowner. In failing to respond to the servants, particularly the son, they failed to respond to the landowner. In lacking respect for the servants, and in lacking respect particularly for the son, they lacked respect for the landowner. By not doing what the ser servants asked, and by not doing particularly what the son asked, they were not doing what the landowner was asking. Right? Their words were his words. Their requests were his requests. Their expectations were actually his expectations. And the rejection of the one or the ones who came by the authority of the landowner had actually been a rejection of the landowner himself, particularly when it came to the rejection of his very own son. And verse 14 makes it very, very clear. They didn't want to submit themselves to his authority. They wanted to be their own authority. They didn't want to answer to the landowner they didn't want to answer to anybody but themselves. They wanted to be in charge of their lives and of their futures. So there's, they're just going to take, simply take what's not theirs, make it their own, regardless of the cost. And so we asked this question the second time. What was he driving at? What was he trying to communicate? What, what was he wanting those who were listening at the time to understand? And again, it's very simple. Remember the questions. I've already uh, brought us back to them a couple of times, but remember the questions back in verse 2. By what authority did he do these things he had been doing, or who was it that gave him this authority? And he may not have answered in verse 8, but he answers in the story, and it was Jesus who had the authority, and he had been given the son by his father, and he had been given that authority because he was the only begotten beloved son. He was the eternal son of the father. And just as their fathers, the religious leaders' fathers, had rejected the prophets over and over and over again, these religious leaders were in the process of rejecting the son in whom the great I am was pleased. Their lack of respect for Jesus was a lack of respect for the Heavenly Father. 
By failing to do what Jesus asked, they were failing to do what God Almighty had asked them to do. Jesus' requests were his requests. His expectations were his expectations. Their rejection of Jesus's or the rejection of Jesus and his authority had been and would be a rejection of the maker of heaven and earth. Remember what Jesus said in John 12? Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me to say. And the problem wasn't just with the religious leaders. It was a problem for anyone and everyone, regardless of position or status or class or rank or or gender or ethnicity, because the problem was the problem with the human heart. We can go back to Genesis 3 and see the same scenario played out, right? Adam and Eve were given everything that they could possibly need to flourish in their relationship with God. And what do they do? Rather than to submit to Him and to His authority, they chose to reject it. And they attempted to place themselves in a position that was only rightfully His. And we've been doing it ever since. Brothers and sisters, for us tonight, again, it's an easy one to make. We live in a time and in a culture when questioning authority is uh, commonplace and it's lauded as wise. But in particular, we live in a time and in a culture in which the rejection of God and or the rejection of His Word is trendy and is being and as being the only appropriate choice for those who desire to be intellectually honest. Some are willing to just dive off the deep end in the very beginning and just claim, boldly claim that Jesus doesn't exist, or God doesn't exist, or either one exists, but God doesn't exist, right? To claim authority for themselves, they just, they just, just want to make it easier by denying His existence in order to eliminate the competition, But what they also want to do is to eliminate the inner conflict that exists within them due to the fact that God has revealed Himself to all people, in the words of chapter 1 of our confession, by the light of nature, which means that it involves the divine imprint that is upon every person who has been created in the image of God. We also know that God has revealed Himself, again, in the words of our confession, through the works of creation and providence, or to put it um, more simply, um, through how the world works and everything in it, how it works. 
And Paul says, this is why Paul says in Romans 1 that to deny his existence is simply to propagate a lie and suppress the truth. And in the end, it really doesn't solve the problem, it simply ignores the problem of authority. That's some. What's becoming more and more common and even faddish is for some to maintain their belief in God and even their trust in Jesus, but they have determined to reject the authority of Scripture. They claim that to believe in God and to trust in Jesus, they, they claim to believe in God and trust in Jesus, yet they reject the Bible as holy and inerrant and authoritative and all-sufficient. And what they don't understand is what Jesus is saying right here. While they say they trust in Jesus, to reject the Word is to actually reject Him. Their lack of respect for the Word is a lack of respect for Him. By failing to do what the Word says, they're failing to do what He has said. And that's because the Bible doesn't contain His Word, it is His Word. The commands are His commands. Its expectations are His expectations. The Bible is the revelation of God Himself, particularly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is authoritative because He has been given all authority on heaven and, in heaven and on earth. And so to reject Him, or to reject it is to reject Him. To believe in God and have faith in Christ without believing in the authority of the Word of God is to believe in God, in a God, and to have faith in a Savior who are figments of our imagination created in our own minds and created in our own image. And to reject Jesus as the Bible reveals Him to be will not end well for those who choose that path. Which brings us to our final point. The consequences of unbelief. Look at verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. Surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, well, what then is this written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus finishes the story and asks those who are listening to answer a question, and what He's really trying to get them to do is indict themselves on charges of unbelief. What should the landowner do to those who rejected Him by rejecting His Son? See, this isn't about works. This isn't about works at all. The landowner is not responding. Notice, the landowner is not responding to the absence of fruit or the failure of the production of fruit of the vineyard. There was plenty of fruit. He's responding to the rejection of his authority, particularly as it pertains to the rejection and murder of his son. 
And Jesus answers the question for them. He says, I'll, I'll tell you what he'll do. He's going to come and destroy them. And he's going to give the vineyard to others. So for the last time, what was Jesus driving at? What's he communicating? What did he want those originally listening to understand? Well, we already know they do understand what he's saying, right? How do they respond? Surely not. No way. This can't be. There's got to be some other way. Because they knew what he was saying. Spiritual leadership was going to be handed off to somebody else. They also knew what he was saying. They knew that he was saying that the nation of Israel, right, their privileged position and identity as being the people of God was going to change as well. That's why they couldn't get their heads around They, they couldn't understand it. And of course, we know from the book of Acts that it's exactly what happens. Right? The, the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders and the chief priests, right? their authority, their, their leadership is, is handed off to the apostles. And we know from the book of Acts that not only was the transfer of leadership made, but, but the gospel was taken to both Jew and Gentile, thus revealing that the true, true Israel, the true descendants of Abraham, the true people of God would be made up of those from every tribe, nation, race, and tongue. Those who had been justified by faith in Christ. And he responds to their disapproval and doubt by looking them straight in the eye and says, well, if it's not true, what in the world was the psalmist and the prophet Isaiah and Daniel all referring to? What were they referring to when they spoke of the stone that the builders rejected and has become the cornerstone? What were they referring to when they said that everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces and when it falls on anyone it will crush him? Well, he knew what they didn't know and that was in less than a week. They were going to kill him just as the tenants had killed the beloved son of the landowner. So he's really looking at him and saying, look, don't you know by now? This has been a long trip to Jerusalem. (laughs) Do you not get it yet? I'm the rock of stumbling. I'm the stone of offense. You're stumbling over me because you don't like my message. You've been offended by my message, and so you're rejecting me. But you may cast me aside, you may cast me out, you may reject me, but in so doing, I will become a stone upon which all of those who reject me will fall and be destroyed. But all of those who believe in me and trust in me, I will become the foundation upon which they will stand, not only today, but forever. Jerusalem and the temple is going to fall. He says, but the people of God will remain in their true sense, and I will be their cornerstone. Looking back, Paul 
puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for He Himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And He came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, He says... You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit. Same message from one who used to be a part of the same group who rejected him. And of course, Jesus was pointing out also, he had been pointing out this ultimate judgment that was coming. Right? There was the immediate, but there was also that which would take place upon his return. Every nation would ultimately fall, and his kingdom would be the only kingdom that would stand. And judgment was coming for those who would reject Him. They would be crushed. The language, folks, the, the language doesn't get any better, right? Last week they were slaughtered. This week they're crushed. The truth is the same. And the kingdom of God will prevail. The kingdom of God will prevail. It'll be victorious. The enemy of, of God, the enemies of God will be utterly defeated. For us tonight, doesn't get any clearer, right? Because the same message is true. You may, somebody here tonight may be doubting the judgment of God to come. You may not believe in the judgment. You may not believe that it's sure, and I get it, but this too has been a problem for mankind since the garden. Satan coaxed Adam and Eve into believing and doubting the judgment and succeeded. They didn't believe it, but their doubt and unbelief didn't make it any less true. And they found out the hard way. And due to his success, Satan has continued with the same old, same old. Right? There's nothing new in his bag of tricks. He, continue, he continues to tempt people day after day into believing that future judgment is not a reality. He continues to, to tempt us into believing that we won't surely die due to our sin and our rejection of Jesus. 
And if that is you this evening, you need to know that if you refuse to believe, if you refuse to believe in the judgment, that doesn't make it any less true. And things will not end well. Our salvation has nothing to do with our works. Thanks be to God. Nothing to do in and of ourselves. It has everything to do with Jesus. And the choice has been, same, been the same throughout our study of this wonderful gospel. Right? It's accept or reject. Believe or don't believe. Stand or fall. Be built up or crushed. And it's the most important decision you'll make because it has eternal consequences. The good news is, the good news is that even the hardest of hearts is no match for Almighty God. He can turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. The most stubborn and rebellious people are no match for Almighty God. His long-suffering, His forbearance, His mercy and grace and forgiveness can overcome the fiercest of resistance. Again, we look at Paul. If you've been stubborn and rebellious, if you've been resistant, can I encourage you this evening to stop? Stop. Repent of your sin and come to Jesus. He is faithful and will forgive you of your sin. And can I encourage you, those of you who are praying for those that you love and are near you and friends and family who are rebellious and stubborn and resistant, can I encourage you to continue to pray for them?